Welcome to the Mini Break, your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, September 25th. It was a busy weekend across levels in the tennis world. Of course, our Cracked Rackets team thoroughly enjoyed our first broadcast of the 2023-24 college tennis season. There was action happening across the country, not just our Malibu showdown, and we'll recap All of it over on the Great Shot podcast feed on Tuesday, of course. If you're looking for the biggest challenger-level storylines, listen to Monday's episode from our dearest contributor and friend, Damian Kust, of course, here on this show. I want to recap all the tour-level or tour-level adjacent action we saw unfold. We had Maria Sakkari finally earning title number two. It came at the 1,000-level event in Guadalajara. She didn't drop a set on her way to the title. And, of course, we recapped every round but the finals on last week's show. So if you're looking for more Guadalajara details, check those episodes out today. I just want to talk about the final. Again, for Maria Sakkari, what this win does for her, not just in the rankings, but there's an intent an intangible value, sorry, a little bit of a tongue twister. There's an intangible value to this victory for Maria Sakkari that's not quantifiable. And I want to get into that here on today's show. Of course, I do want to talk about the ranking implications of Caroline Dalahide's run. First final at the tour level, it comes at a 1,000 level event. Obviously, that's going to be a major win for her in the rankings. We'll get into that. Offer final thoughts on Parma, a reminder what happened in Guangzhou. We'll talk all about the women's level, uh, the WTA tour, excuse me, level action. Of course, on the men's side, we've got ongoing events right now in China, Guangzhou, Zhuhai entering Monday night finals. It'll be Zverev taking on Roman Safiulin. It will be Karen Hachinov taking on Yoshihito Nishioko. I want to break down the quarterfinal, semifinal rounds, my reflections from all of the action that unfolded. It's a big week for Karen Hachinov, one of the strangest ongoing streaks in all of tennis. The fact that Hachinov, with all of his slam success, he hasn't won a title since Paris back in 2018, winning that Paris Masters to end this season. Obviously, he continues to play better and better tennis when healthy over the course of the past 12 months to get this win under his belt. It would be fitting that both he and Sakari snap their streaks in the course of the same what? three or in a course of three days. So again, that storyline, Zverev's back, Safulin, I believe his first tour level final, Nishioka making a final, all those things we'll get into. I want to offer some final thoughts on Laver Cup. Team World dominating, took only one day three match for them to earn a back-to-back Laver Cup victory. Talk about what we learned from that event, who seems well positioned for a strong home stretch to the season. And then again, no marquee superstars in that event. Did it still have gravitas? Was it still thoroughly enjoyable for tennis fans who tuned in? We can talk about that non-quantifiable aspect of that event as well. I want to offer my thoughts on a Dennis Kudla uh, Columbus Challenger title also. That's the agenda for today's show. Of course, a shout out to all of you listeners who tune in, not just to this podcast, but the Great Shot podcast, the Cracked Interviews podcast feed, and all of our shows here at Cracked Rackets. It means the world to us. It's why we continue to try, strive, stride, excuse me, leave it in, 
continue to strive day in, day out to provide you with the best information. Make sure you're the most well-informed tennis fans in the business. Thank you for trusting us. Tune in day in, day out. Thank you to the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point as well. Remember, tennis-point.com for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. You use our promo code CR15. Not only we let them know we sent you there, you'll get 15% off all sale items, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Tennis-Point, symbol not the spelling. Tennis-Point.com. The promo code is CR15. All right, let's start with final thoughts on the final in Guadalajara. Again, what a massive moment for Maria Sakari. Absolutely in danger of falling outside of the top 10 to end this year. That's probably no longer the case as Maria Sakari captures not only her second title, but by far the biggest title of her career, winning a 1,000-level event in Guadalajara. Now, of course, she reached a final in D.C. back in July, but keep in mind, she had lost her last six finals. She had played some of those you know, pretty significant events, that D.C. event in Guadalajara last year to Pagula, that Indian Wells final back in 2022. She'd played in some big matches, certainly, but to get through this final stretch, certainly it was an ideal draw for Maria Sakari. The only seed she faced all week long, Caroline Garcia, and I think of the seeds you could face, Garcia, who has made a ton of quarterfinals, but has really struggled at the business end of tournaments. And, you know, again, if you can take that first strike away from her, she struggled to find a plan B at times this year. Yes, it was an ideal draw for Maria Sakari. She was ranked more highly than every opponent that she faced. She didn't drop a set all week long. She played one seven five set. Everything else finished, you know, in the orderly portion of play. A couple of six threes, a few six four mixed in. She got that bagel, obviously, second set of Garcia. But you know, she faced two break points in the final against Dalahide. She won seventy percent of her first serve points, was dominant behind that serve plus one every time she got an opportunity to attack the Caroline Dalahide backhand, get her stretch on that wing. She took advantage of doing so. And look, for Caroline Dalahide, you could tell the legs just weren't quite there. She had her lowest first serve percentage of the week. Her first serve win percentage, 58%, also her lowest of the week. She faced 11 break points throughout the course of the match. She was always pushed on her back foot. She did do some dictating with the first serve when she got clean looks at the first forehand. Obviously, the game plan was clear. Go, go, go on that shot because longer rallies were not trending her direction. But that's a credit to Sakari, who made every match just physical enough or as physical as possible, really, in these elevated Guadalajara conditions where the ball is just flying off the racket. And, you know, again, that amplified her kick serve, that amplified the chutzpah behind her first forehand, and then she had the physicality others lacked to extend rallies, to, again, extend points to 10, 15 shots. And yes, there were some nerves that leaked in, certainly for Sakari. Set number one, she gives a late break back to Caroline Dalahide. Nevertheless, a few Double faults leak in for Dalahide down the home stretch of that set. She gives that break back to Sakari, who ultimately ends up closing things out in the first. And, you know, the second set was never really in doubt. She needed it for Maria Sakari, who, as we've talked about, really struggled at the majors this year. Obviously had some tough draws, but first round losses in New York, Wimbledon, Paris, 
in the last three majors of the year, losing to an unseeded Ju Lin. Yes, that loss has aged fine given the year Ju Lin has had, particularly on hard courts, but she didn't make a single second week at the majors, and yet she is going to finish this season. I'm fairly confident inside the top 10. She's back up to number six in the live rankings with this result. She's within 306 points of Anjabur. She now overtakes Madison Keys for ninth in the points race. And look, Sakari's going from Guadalajara to Tokyo. She's playing this week, and, you know, again, there are still a few pockets of points left to be picked up. Now, Jabur is also playing this week for what it's worth, but, I, I again, schedule-wise, you wonder how much success can Sakari have making the transition across continents, across time zones, across conditions, given the elevated, you know, conditions in Mexico. She's going to have to change the string tension, going to have to get acclimated to the court speed there. What her ball is or isn't doing now that it was the prior week has limited time to do so, but she's in the she's in the race now to make another year-end finals, and I think this would be a third consecutive for Sakari. You make three straight year-end finals. That's a run. Again, there's just fewer than 50 players that have done that in professional tennis history, and, you know, again, now she has a signature title. Yes, was it a signature draw? No, but a signature title under her belt with this Guadalajara 1000 run. And again, you saw on her face what it meant to her to get through the finish line, to get a title. Yes, it was over an unseated Caroline Dalahide, but she still falls to her back. And, you know, again, in near tears as she walks to the net to shake hands because it was that, again, deservedly so, given some of the struggles we've seen from her in big matches in semifinals this year in particular. So massive run for Sakari. She was the best player all week long. It was very evident from the eye test. And obviously the draw broke perfectly for her with all the chaos in the top half. But she was the one who weathered the storm. And that hasn't been the case for her this season. Again, shout out to Maria Sakari, back up to number six in the live rankings. You look for Caroline Dalahide. She ends the week 41 in the world. Come on now. Dalahide reaching her first tour level final of her career, reached her first tour level semifinal uh, this week in Guadalajara as well. She's now 43 and 23, 65 per win percent win percentage in a year that's seen her play 25 K's that's seen her play 60 K's 100 K's have success across levels now in the tennis world and look she gets a one and two win over a top 25 player in Alexandrova yes she got Kennan on the back half of a really physical run to a physical two-week stretch for Kennan still Dalahide's weapons you know out plus oneing Peyton Stearns in that first round match and I think there is an alternate universe where Stearns gets through and she makes a run to the final because I think she could have done the same thing with that draw in these conditions. But, man, Caroline Dalahide has real weapons. Her kick serve, her plus one, her ability and confidence moving forward. Obviously, she, again, she's been a top 50 player in the world in doubles, but now she's going to have a real opportunity to flex her muscles against the top 50 top 100 best players in the world and you look for her in her career 71 and 85 across tour level events that includes qualifying matches she's played 22 top 50 opponents she's 6 and 16 two of those wins coming against Stearns Alexandrova this past week she earned wins against Teichman Brangle and San Diego qualifying last year other than that you have to go back to 2018 or earlier to find top 50 wins you look for her against top 100 opponents 16 and 32 overall, 7-7 seven and seven this year. Again, it's a 1,000-level event. The rankings are a metric of where you play and what round you get to. 
by that metric, she absolutely belongs in the top 50 of the world rankings. Is her skill set top 50 across surfaces? We'll find out. I think she's gotten a lot better as a mover, still can get stretched, particularly on that backhand wing where things can get a little stiff and she plays the slice well, but you know, that ball hung short, and when it did, Sakari pounced on it, as elite competition will do. Now, she has weapons to, again, play on her terms, dictate control of a match. It's going to be fascinating to see because, obviously, you have these points couched in the back half of your year. What does she have to defend at the start of next season? Will you look for her, again, across tour-level events, 12 and 13? She made a round of 16 in Charleston, a quarterfinal from qualifying in Monterey. That's really it from a tour-level result perspective. And again, she's going to be getting into main draws of 250-level events, qualifying at the worst in every event that she plays. Yes, there's some serious 100K, 125K points that come off her resume through the summer, but she can replace those easily in the first third of the year when, again, she was playing 25Ks and 60Ks. So, if, if her game is top 50 ready, there's more room for her to grow in the rankings. She can flirt with top 25 with how few tour-level points she has to defend f- through the start of next season. It'll be fascinating to see again. Certainly one of the biggest winners of the week, Caroline Dalahide, into the top 50. I mentioned it, 10 top 50 Americans right now on the women's side. It's been a fantastic year for American tennis, whether it's Coco Goff winning a slam, Pagula winning a 1,000-level event, Shelton semifinals, Tiafo, Paul, Fritz, all flirting with serious top 10 stretches of tennis and all top 15 in the rankings, the Eubanks resurgence, Mackey, Garone holding tough. I'm sure I'm, uh, I'm missing an American story in there somewhere. You know, Seppi Corda top 10 player in the month of January. I guess that's another storyline. And, you know, again, on the women's side, Stearns, Navarro, Dalahide, all top 50 players. Kennan back in the top 50 now as well, where she belongs, certainly when healthy. She's a former slam champion and made another slam final on a different surface. It's been a good stretch. It's been a really good year for American tennis after, again, A really rough 2010s decade, big picture overall, especially for the men. Obviously, for the women, you still had Serena. You've had the emergence of Sloan and Keys and obviously now Coco and Pagula as superstars. But the men are starting to keep pace as well, and the women are holding pace in this post-Serena era, and that is all you can ask for as an American tennis fan. So there's your American tennis tangent for the day, uh, and I'll be talking about that at more length when I speak with Gil Gross on his Monday Match Analysis show on YouTube, which I believe will be posted Monday night or Tuesday. Uh, again, Guadalajara, soccer your champ, Dalahide your finalist, a reminder, your semifinalists, Kennan and Garcia in doubles. It was Storm Sanders, Lisa Mertens, knocking off U.S. Open champions Dabrowski and Rutliff, 10-4 in the third set breaker. Very good week for the U.S. Open champs as they continue to make a top or a year-end finals push. Sanders and Mertens are just very, very good. And they were the number one seeds coming in. Another 1,000 level of uh, title for them. I would be shocked to see them not in the tour-level finals to end the year. That's your Guadalajara update. I guess we'll quickly go through Guangzhou and Parma. I'll be honest, I didn't watch much of Parma this week, but you win a 125K, you have my attention. And, you know, Anna Bogdan's done a lot of winning throughout the course of this year. You look at what she's done, uh, 
came into the week 71 in the world, 29 and 20 overall in the year, but 101.25K in July. Um, again, a couple of quarterfinals under her resume as well. Now another 125K title here in Parma for uh, the 30-year-old. She's back up to number 69 in the live rankings as a result. Good place to be at this stage of her career. You look for uh, Anna Karolina Schmidlova in making the final of this 125K event. It's her first final of the season. And, you know, again, she's also won a ton of matches this year across levels. You look now in 2023, 30 and 23 overall on the season. She's made quarterfinals of ma- events at the 125K level, a couple of 250 quarterfinals for her at the tour level as well. It's what helps you rebuild your ranking. And you look for Shmidova now. She's currently sitting at 58 in the live rankings. Good spot for the 29-year-old. Uh, again, those were your finalists. Kawa Bondar knocked out in the semifinals. And then your reminder, I talked about it at length, but Wang Shiyu, the talented 22-year-old from China, winning her first title of her career in her home country, dominant over Magda Lynette, 6-love, 6-2 in the final. She was dominant against Friedman in, in a 3-4 and four semifinal victory as well. And, you know, you look for Wang Xiu. I believe I said this on Saturday, but she's now sitting 57 in the live rankings. You've got the 21-year-old Wang Xinyu currently sitting at 37 in the live rankings. Ju Lin currently sitting at 32. Jung Chin Wen, 23. I mean, the key thing is Wang Xiu, Wang Xinyu, Jung Chin Wen, they're all 22 years old or younger. There are some serious prospects coming up the ranks in Chinese women's tennis worth keeping an eye on for all of us, particularly, again, as the ATP Tour resumes play in China. And that's where I want to go to next because we saw quarterfinal, semifinal action in both Zhuhai and Chengdu. Let's start with the action in Zhuhai, not for any particular reason. I just think it's fascinating that Karen Hatchinoff still hasn't won a title since Paris 2018. This guy who's made multiple slam quarterfinals, semifinals mixed in, you know, you look at even finals appearances for him since that Paris Masters 2018 final. He made the finals of the Olympics. He made the finals at a 250 in Adelaide to start the 2022 season. And now he's made a final here in Zhuhai. So two tour-level finals plus an Olympic final. That's it for Hatchinov in the last five years. Obviously now can add a third to the mix in making the final here in Zhuhai. I thought he was perfect particularly impressive this weekend and you know given the fact he's still coming off of a back injury that kept him out from Roland Garros to the start of the U.S. Open wins over Bolt then Mackey this weekend 6-4 in the third Corda 5-4 in a match where Corda hit three of the most frustrating drop shots I could think of one in particular so he had a drop shot that he missed, uh, a drop shot that floated on him to get broken in the first set. He hit two extraordinarily ill-advised drop shots back-to-back to get broken in the second set, then hits another drop shot, I believe, to get broke, uh, to get one of the breaks back. He went down a double break in that second set, was able to get one of the breaks back, narrow the deficit to 4-3, but Hatchinov able to hold his serve the rest of the way. Look, Karen Hatchinov in 2023, 26-12 overall. He's won 68% of his matches despite missing the entire summer hatching off 14th in the points race with this run to the final he's back up to 15 in the live rankings he wins tomorrow's match he'll jump Felix Ogier Aliasim for 14th again a very good week for Hatchinov who 
has just gotten better at absorbing pace through his forehand wing. Mackey was so consistent in attacking that forehand side for Hatchinoff. Mackey did an extraordinary job of absorbing Hatchinoff's pace, short hopping every second serve, and he saw a lot of them. Hatchinoff struggled on the first serve in that match. It's what allowed Mackey to keep things so close. Mackey continuing to press forward, continuing to, again, pressure that forehand with pace, but Hatchinoff found enough passes. The pass he hit to break Mackey for 5-4, uh, I believe, in the third set, or maybe it was 4-3, or maybe it was... I think it was 4-3. Breathtaking. Just a, a br- no, I think it was 5-4 because then Hatchinoff served it out immediately after. It was a breathtaking on-the-run forehand pass, the sort of ball I've seen Hatchinoff shank repeatedly over the years. And he's just cleaned that up. He's cleaned the forehand return up. He's always been consistent through his backhand wing, even when pressured with pace. Now, again, it can be a little bit robotic from Hatchinoff, but he moves really well for, for a guy that size. And again, this streak should come to an end. I think he's going to beat Yoshihito Nishioka tomorrow. Nishioka, uh, of course, reaching a much-needed final this week in Juhai, particularly given that he reached, what, finals or won the title in Seoul at the end of last year and, you know, had City Open final points to defend where he lost opening round in that match earlier this summer. Gets to the final this past weekend with wins in straight sets over Struff, over Karatsev. Now, they were straight set matches. The Karatsev match in particular, very physical. Two hours of play. Nishioka just, nothing was down the center third of the court. And if it was, it was a slice. Nothing in Karatsev's strike zone easily. Now, there were times when, again, Aslan Karatsev, who beats Murray, who beats Nori in the quarterfinals. And I don't think Cam Nori played poorly. I thought Karatsev was that much in form. Now, Nori served for the second set, got broken at love. That's very disappointing. Uh, Ultimately knocked out in straight sets there. But, man, Yoshi, the physicality. He was snapping forehands against Karatsev because he knows, hey, I can't give this guy time. I can't give him a second look at a clean strike on a ball. Everything was in the outer thirds and, you know, no more than two balls in the same direction. And if those two balls were the same direction, the first one's deep with pace. The second one's a short angle to get Karatsev stretched even further and open up another lane of attack. Again, Yoshi doesn't have the well, he does have massive weapons from the ground. When he snaps a forehand, it's snapped as well as anyone. The serve's obviously the issue. That can hang up. It didn't. I thought he hit his spots very well against Karatsev. He's made over about 70% of his first serves in this event so far. A much-needed final for Nishioka in jeopardy of falling outside of the top uh, top 50. Excuse me. He's back up to number 38 in the live rankings with this result. Gives him a little bit of cushion going into Seoul or having to defend those Seoul points next week. Again, for Korda, a good semifinal in the context of now he's made semifinals in two of his last three events. Dominated Tomas Martinac very one and two in the quarters and had serious looks against Hatchinov. Got off to a strong start in that match, getting an opening break. Again, played two, three really, made three really bad choices with drop shots throughout the course of the match. And in matches where margins are this thin against top competition in the world, that can be the difference. The good news We'll see him in Astana uh, this week as he will continue his play. That Astana court, as we know, slow, high bouncing. That's a court quarter could absolutely dominate, give him more time to get into his playbook. And we know how elite his weaponry can be. 
I want to see Korda continue on this trend. I think semifinals are a good start for him, but he's got to get some wins to end the season because he just hasn't been healthy since January. And after such a start, strong start, it would just be such a disappointment for him to not be seeded come the Australian Open next year. And right now he's in jeopardy of falling out of that range. That said again, Nishioka versus Hatchinov, the final Hatchinov, 3-1 and one in the career head-to-head. A shout-out to this draw. Seven of the top eight seeds making the quarterfinals. Karatsev, the spoiler, making the semifinals. But, you know, again, Nishioka beating Struff. I don't know if that qualifies as an upset given Struff still coming off of injury. I think getting a win under his belt, a good start for him as he tries to rack up some points here, knowing how he has to protect his ranking early next season. Mackey was excellent. He still has more points to defend uh, coming up this season end of the year, but right now sitting at a career high, 39 in the live rankings. Good week for many players in Zhuhai choosing to, again, value the opportunities provided by the home stretch of the season. Speaking of which, in Chengdu, Alex Virov now asserts command of that number seven spot in the ATP points race. Zverev into the final this week in Chengdu. He leaps both Fritz and Runa now. He's got a 115-point lead on Runa, 160-point lead on Fritz. Now, again, that's not much given how much is left on the calendar, but for Sasha Zverev into his 32nd career tour-level final, you know, he will finish the year top 10. He's got about a 500-point lead on Francis Tiafo. And remember, every match Alex Virov plays, he's just adding points to his total. He has nothing to defend. So he will have regained his top 10 spot to end this year, will likely reach the tour-level finals event. Obviously, we've seen him win before. He's been pushed in all of his matches. The Kotov match was a little strange. I thought Miomir Kasmenovic, it was one of those matches when I watched Kasmenovic and I think, how is this guy not consistently a top 25 player? He just can be good at everything. Now, again, because I think he's good at everything, I don't think Miomir Kasmenovic ever knows exactly what he wants to do. In this match, he was decisive. Again, matched Zverev's physicality, and whenever Zverev would leave something short, Kasmenovic early on the rise down the line, following it, uh, following it in behind it, just continuing to apply pressure on Zverev. Breaks back late in the second set to level things. And, you know, again, when Zverev's struggling, he was up 40 loved, or 40-15. All of a sudden, it became 4-5 deuce. You thought to yourself, okay, Kasmenovic is going to get out of this. Zverev is going to have one of those Zverev-like moments. Kasmenovic wasn't able to pull through. Zverev didn't fold. Continues to push forward when under pressure. And I just think given the pace of his serve and his length moving forward, that play has become a... A, a stress relief valve that I do think works for him tactically. You know, again, it was a really impressive three-set win, given how physical those first two sets were. And Zero's just moving better. He's tracking down more drop shots. He's passing more confidently out of his corners. And he had a couple of on-the-run cross-court pass against Kesmenovic late in the second, early in the first. That just kind of clinched the deal. There was the on-the-run forehand pass it to earn the early second set break where it was just like, all right, Zverev's got this now. And he's hitting through those balls on the run in corners now and not just chipping his way out of it. He looks like one of the... I mean, again, I'd put him four or five right now in the world. I think you got to go Djokovic, Alcaraz, Medvedev. That's tier... You know, that's the top tier. Well, 
Djokovic Alcaraz probably the top tier. Medvedev maybe by himself. Then I'd put Zverev Sinner, and depending on the day, depending on the event, you flip-flop those two between four and five in the world. That feels pretty clear to me who the five best players are. I wonder if we'll see that manifest itself down the season's home stretch. Zverev then, by the way, a seventh consecutive win over Grigor Dimitrov, three and six. Served to the backhand, ability to move forward behind it, ability to play with pace through the Dimitrov backhand and ability to match Dimitrov's physicality. It's just a brutal matchup for Grigor, who had a very good week reaching the semifinals. I'll continue to say I think it's one of Grigor's five best seasons. He's pretty clearly one of the 20 best players in the world. Not sure how much higher than 20, but pretty clearly one of the 20 best. He just ran into one of the five best. And again, Zverev through the final, where he will face Roman Sefiulin and Longtime listeners of the show know I have bought a lot of Sefulin stock over the years here on this podcast. Romo, born in 97, but was one of the top, you know, again, he's two years younger than me. Typically, if you're one of the best juniors in the world, you're playing two years above your age group. You know, Colette Lewis was always writing about him. He was always one of the top juniors in the world, putting together massive events now. You know, again, he didn't grow as tall as some of his peers. He also dealt with a lot of different injuries early on in his pro career, but his weapons from the ground are elite. And yeah, if you play with elite pace, you can pressure his forehand, which gets a little wristy. And again, because that backswing goes so quickly, you feel like when you can jam it, that's when he'll pop a ball up or shank it wide. You can't play through pace through his backhand. He's got to match your physicality. And if you give him time, his ability to snap through that forehand with how he kind of takes balls on the rise with how short that backswing is on the forehand wing, it reminds you of watching, like, I'm not saying, you know, again, to play Agassi's game in the 2020s just isn't going to be as effective as 1990s and early 2000s Agassi, but... It's shades of Agassi, right, with how he holds his ground so well on the baseline. And look again, gets the retirement from Jordan Thompson. Then not only has he beaten Dan Evans in this event, he now beats Lorenzo Musetti three and four. I love Lorenzo Musetti's game. And when Lorenzo Musetti figures out what he wants plan A to be, how he wants to go about dictating his will against opponents, he's he's not going to leave the top 20 of the rankings for a very long time. He, can, he hits the volley so well. He's so quick, fluid, defense into offense, can slice the backhand, but has no problems driving through it, can hit the on-the-run forehand, cross-court to the open space well, gets outside the ball, but can flatten things out. He likes to show off, though. He likes to get out improvisational. He likes to show off that speed and counterpunch. And, you know, again, you can't give Sefulin time because he's just so precise with his spots. I take nothing bad out of Lorenzo Musetti's loss. I still liked everything I saw from him this week in Chengdu. And again, he's got some points to defend. Not serious points, but some points to defend to end this year. He's still going to end the year top 30. I mean, again, for Safulin now into his first tour-level final. And with this result, Safulin up to a new career high, 41 in the live rankings. He belongs there. I had a take brewing that he's going to end 2024 as one of the 25 best players in the world. I'll save that take for December or an according podcast where it's necessary. But hey, Hatchinov's in a final. Safulin's in a final. Rublev's playing Labor Cup. Medvedev just made a U.S. Open final. Karatsev semifinals. It's a good week for Russian men's tennis. Worth pointing out across the board as Safulin now another Russian into the top 50. Karatsev sitting at 52. So we almost have, what, five top 50 Russians. Not too shabby for the country. Um... Again, outside of that, quick Laver Cup thoughts, Columbus Challenger thoughts, and then we'll wrap today's show. 
I mean, it was a blowout. Team World dominating Europe 13-2 overall. They go undefeated on day one. I talked about that on Saturday morning show. Day two, a three-in-one uh, three day. Now, Kasparud played solid tennis against Tommy Paul. That first set was particularly fun. 7-6-6-2 win for a Kasparud who just needs some momentum going into the home stretch of the season. And perhaps that win can just help him find some confidence as we head into this home stretch. Fritz was Awesome, And I thought it was a slow indoor hard court, which is typical of these Laver Cup. They like to play on those slower courts, give these guys time to show off their athleticism, extend rallies. You give Fritz a slow hard court with the pace he's able to play with, his ability to get outside the ball. He was just always able to find the Andre Rublev backhand. He came out guns blazing on the return of serve. Two and six win for Fritz. Tiafo just out Hercots. Hercots, two guys, big first serves. They like to move forward. They like to be improvisational. The forehand can get a little leaky at times. Francis is just better than Hoopy at this point. Tiafo, five and three win. That was a very fun match. And then the best part of Laver Cup is always the doubles. And Felix and Shelton put on a show, five and four over Hercots and Monfi. Tiafo, Shelton put on a show. The only match of the final day, the Americans clinching with a six and six win over Hercots and Rublev. And again, these guys, their reactions are so quick. The returns are so great. The serves, the poaching, it's everything you could hope for uh, when these superstars share the court. And look, I enjoyed every Laver Cup match. I actually think big picture it's fun to see Tommy play a Casper. It's fun to see Fritz play a Rublev. We're still trying to sort out the pecking order. I know earlier I said my top five are pretty clear. I could not tell you who's six in the world. Like, again, I feel pretty good. I'm going to pick Djokovic, Alcaraz, Medvedev. If I'm being honest, Zverev, Sinner, in that order, in every match that they play, unless they're playing one another. Who's six on that list? Is it the consistency of Rublev? Is it the slam finals of Kaspar Ruud? Is it Tsitsipas, who we know what he can be when he's in form? Is it, you know, uh, any of the Americans, Tiafo, Fritz, Paul, who at times have certainly all looked apart? Obviously, Holger is injured right now, but he belongs in that conversation. I think from a fan perspective, that's the storyline they should be selling. Uh, to the fans, excuse me, from a Laver Cup perspective, is look, you want to know who the best guys in the world are right now? We're putting them head-to-head. You get to see them. And these are pecking order matches that these guys take seriously because they're competing for their teams. You feel that energy. You feel that excitement, that desperation for all of these players to not fall short and be the teammate that disappoints the others. I think the gravitas is still there. I thought the energy was still there. Obviously, again, the marquee names aren't there. Now, I've been making this argument since we started Cracked Rackets. That's the whole thing is to try and shine a spotlight on these guys, the level of tennis they're still playing, even if their names aren't Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, Alcaraz, etc. I thought the event maintained the level. I thought the players sustained their excitement. There certainly wasn't the buzz on social media that it feels like there typically is, even despite the Felix Ogier-Monfi tiff on day number two, that was ultimately, or day one, that was ultimately decided. I mean, again, to use social media as a barometer of general interest, crowd looked pretty full in Vancouver. Hard to check ratings year over year. Again, it was a very busy week in the tennis world. I know it certainly was featured over on Tennis Channel. 
I thought the matches were as entertaining. I thought we got some really good results. Obviously, Team World destroyed Team Europe, and there were a lot of notable Europeans absent from the event. But look, Team World needed to build some confidence. They got whooped for many of the opening years. And even actually then, they didn't get whooped. There was also often final day drama, Federer over Kyrgios. I think Zverev clinched a Laver Cup once upon a time. There have been some very fun matches over the years, certainly. I thought this year had some fun ones. Again, I always think the doubles in these events shine more than anything else. But if you are debating, should I go back, watch the replays of this event, see what I missed? I think the answer is yes. I think you start with the doubles. You'll see the energy there. You'll thoroughly start to enjoy it. And then I would watch Fritz first. That one felt like it mattered more than anything else because Fritz has a shot at the year-end finals. He's got to play some good ball. He is Casper Tommy 2 after that, just pick your favorite name. Go from there. Again, very fun Laver Cup and very fun Columbus Challenger as well. A shout out to my guy, Alex Guthrie, the top-notch management team. They put on another stellar event. Ultimately, it was Dennis Kudla back in title town. Kudla winning his first title since uh, Phoenix back in 2022. A uh, good, good week for him. Wins over Galarno, Peniston, School Kate, who's had a really good summer. All in straight sets over the course of championship weekend. With this result, Kudla, who had fallen outside the top two, uh, 200, he's back up to number 173 now in the live rankings, if nothing else. Keeps the 31-year-old in qualifying range for the Australian Open. And obviously, you've got the Australian Open USTA wildcard challenge coming up. Those will be indoor hardcourt challenger events as well. Charlottesville, Knoxville, Champaign. Kudla getting some indoor hardcourt challenger confidence under his belt with the title run here. Really good week for Lexi Gallardo as well, coming from a Davis Cup where he beats Senego, where he beats Talib, uh, Tablilo, gets a win over Enzo Cacao, a good straight set win over Ohio State's own Cannon Kingsley in the semis. And, you know, again, reaching this challenger final this week, I believe it is his third challenger final overall, second challenger final of the season with the result Gallardo up to 176 in the live rankings. I think the 24-year-old could absolutely make a top 100 push in 2024. He's just that solid across the board and has really done his best to maximize his weapons. Again, I'm not sure what the weakness is. Uh, I don't know if he has an overwhelming strength, but guy's going to be out there. He's going to attack. He's going to take that ball early on the rise. He's fantastic at indoor hardcourt tennis, which I know there's plenty of left on the schedule. So keep your eye on the Canadian, Lexi Galarno. Very successful run for him, making that final in Columbus. That said, that's everything pro tennis or tour-level tangential from the past weekend in the pro tennis world now. Again, we're going to be talking college tomorrow on the Great Shot podcast feed. There's more challenger talk available, better depth from our contributor Damian Koost over on our Great Shot podcast feed. A shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of any job he does day in, day out, making all of that content possible. We're going to have a busy week for all of you Cracked Rackets fans. I'm going to get creative. Obviously, we've got plenty of tour level events still to discuss, but... Now's the time of the year where we can have the sort of fun conversations we always enjoy having here at Cracked Rackets. So be on the lookout for those and more across our platforms. This one, the Great Shot podcast feed. And yes, it is time for me to get our Cracked Interviews podcast feed rocking and rolling again. So be on the lookout for podcasts across all of our platforms coming up in the very near future. Of course, a shout out to our friends at Tennis Point for the support they give this show. Tennis-Point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the 
the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. With that said, for the fantastic super producer, Danny Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.